Please direct your attention with me this morning to Psalm 1. This first psalm in that book of, of Scripture, Psalm 1. And as you turn there, I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. Uh, we know what's going on with the Stover family. I trust Well, we heard Gary preaching about, I'm not preaching, praying about Jordan. And, and if you're on our email list, you've, you've no doubt seen the updates that... Um, uh, the rain keeps falling for the Stover family, just with um, having Dell. I mean, going even back to uh, Greg closely ministering uh, with, with Don and his accident, Don Kinzel and his death and funeral, and then getting sick right after that, and, and very soon leading into uh, Jerry's um, turn for the worst physically. Jerry, of course, uh, Lori's stepdad, who is living with the Stovers, who died a week ago yesterday, and then his funeral, his memorial service was here yesterday. Many of you were here for that. Um, leading right into this appendicitis uh, with Jordan and this acute pain that's being dealt with in the hospital. So a lot of uh, challenges for the Stover family. We keep them in prayer. And it just became clear this morning that, um, that, that Greg, just providentially because of this, wasn't going to be able to preach just as, as we had planned. That's, it's in your bulletin that he's preaching. And so it was a pretty last-minute uh, change. So I'm here to bring uh, God's word to you from Psalm 1. So... Let me read it and then pray for God's... Oh, yes. Thanks, Jeff. Um, this is the third Sunday of the month, so this is a time we have a, a special time for kids who are is it sixth grade and younger who are welcome to go to a time of kids' ministry, singing and teaching of God's word to them. Kids are welcome to stay here as well. Parents, it's up to you. Uh, either way, they're going to hear uh, the truth of Christ. They're going to be ministered to. Um, so we, we, uh, we have our blessings, kids and adults who are serving. Thank you. Um, let's read Psalm 1 and, and pray for God's blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we bless you and we thank you for these life-giving words you've spoken as they come from your own eternal character, your eternal wisdom. And we know that you have things to teach us by this true, authoritative, reliable word. We pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and through me, the speaker, make us uh, soft before you and make me clear in my speech so that your truth can tr transform us, to show us Christ to induce in our hearts a response of faith, a response of humility, a response of obedience to all you have for us. We pray that you would give us joy in your ways. Help us to see the true nature of sin and the true nature of walking in your ways. All for your glory in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can anyone tell me without looking what our church logo is? What does our church logo depict? A tree firmly planted by streams of water. 
This is the, our church logo. It's on the front. Now you can look. It's on the front of your bulletin on the top left. Thank you. Um, and there's actually a passage next to that. It's an excerpt from Psalm 1. This, this psalm is the inspiration for our church logo because it's a, a key kind of uh, cornerstone text regarding the ministry of God's word in our lives and even the vision the Bible gives us of what the fruit of that, uh, the work of God's word in our lives would be. Uh, so what's uh, interesting providentially is that I actually met with a few guys yesterday and prayed over this psalm. And uh, I had no idea that I was going to be needing to preach it. But when it came time to decide to preach something, this is what came to mind, having just been saturating in it with some brothers and praying over it. Uh, but we often, someone pointed out when we were doing that, that we often envision, and it's in the logo, we envision a single tree, a single solitary tree sitting there by the river. Uh, consider, though, what it looks like when you go to a riparian zone. You go to a creek anywhere, a river. What does it look like all along both banks? It's tree after tree. It's this tangle of, of thick kind of wooded area. So, so someone say, hey, that's a good picture of the church. That's all of us. We're all, we're all being nourished by the streams of water. I pray that's the case this, this morning as we look to God's word. What we're going to do is follow this psalm and look at two kinds of life, two different ways of life, so to speak. And we're going to, to trace up from their roots to then looking at their trunk and their branches and finally their fruit. So you see this progression from the roots to the kind of the middle, the trunk and branches, and finally the fruit. And what we're going to see is that the best life is a godly life. The best life is a godly life. Now, there are all kinds of motivations for why you might go through the motions of, of the Christian life, why you might be here this morning. Um, there are some good motivations. There's a lot of bad motivations. One thing that you might not think in terms of is that it's actually a really enjoyable and blessed existence to be a Christian, to be one of God's people. That's really what this psalm is trying to show us. When I say the best life is a godly life, I don't mean uh, it, it trades off for something that's actually good. You, you, you go through the bad thing of being godly, and then you get something good for it. No, it is the best life. That's what this psalm is telling us. So first we're going to look at the roots. This is verses 1 and 2. The roots. These are, uh, this is a contrast between two sources of life. So that's what roots do. They, they, they find a source in something, right? So the, the, the roots are two sources of life in verses 1 and 2. It says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So in this case, we're looking at these two contrasting people. And we're asking the question, where do they draw their life from? And more specifically, where do they get their wisdom from? Where do they get their counsel from? Where do they, they get their cues about values, what things are valuable versus what things are worthless? Where do they get their vision for what goals to pursue, what life is supposed to be about? Now, verse 1 tells us that the blessed man does not do a bunch of things. And in a way, he's describing what the wicked man does. When verse 1 is telling us the, wicked, the righteous doesn't do, he's telling us then, by implication, what the wicked does. He, and you think about these different kind of uh, body positions. He walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. So there's all kind of different motions, different kind of life situations. Who are these people? Well, the wicked and the sinful seem pretty clear. They're, they're people who are evil, and they're people who are dominated by sin. 
Who are these scoffers? Well, this is a word that shows up a lot in Proverbs, in the wisdom literature. It's also translated in Proverbs 3.34 as scorners. This is somebody, you can imagine, who hears a wise word, maybe a wise uh, proverb out of, out of scripture, and responds with like an eye roll and a snide remark. That's the kind of heart that a scoffer has. There's always kind of some clever thing they can say to deflect. They're not, they don't have that soft heart that listens. And so the wicked, by implication here, the wicked is saturating his life in the company of these kinds of people. And these are the kinds of people who influence him deeply. They shape his, and we could say, or her. It, it could it just as easily be a, a woman or a girl. They shape his or her view of the world. They shape his view of what's important. They shape his view of what he values and, and what behaviors he finds normal. That's what the company of these kinds of people will do to you. What is the contrast then? Well, the contrast is the blessed one, the blessed man or woman, whose roots tap into an entirely different source. And what's that source? Verse 2 tells us. It's the law of the Lord. Now, this word law, broadly, uh, there's kind of a narrow sense in which it means God's commandments. Think of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me, etc. That's part of God's law. Uh, In a broader sense, what the word could be translated is his instruction. And even in the part of the Bible that we call the law, uh, the books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, there are many commandments, do this, don't do this. There's also broader instruction, kind of reasoning out from the the commandments. Um, It includes even promises and truths about who God is. This is all the broad sense of what we mean by the law of the Lord. It's not simply the do's and don'ts. It's the broader context in which they're given regarding the character of God, the covenant of God, and all that he teaches. Even the Ten Commandments themselves sort of uh, expect, if you read them in the context of the rest of God's law, they kind of expect to be pried open by moral reasoning. So, for instance, um, we have the commandment, you shall not murder, Exodus 20, 13. Okay, that seems pretty clear, and and a lot of you probably can read that and feel pretty good about it. We can feel like, well, thankfully, I've, I've never murdered anyone. I guess I'm doing pretty well with God's law. Well, if you read elsewhere in the Pentateuch, you see that there, this sort of you shall not murder kind of works itself out in a lot of different ways. Later on in Deuteronomy 22, 8, when, when God is giving them laws for how to live in the land, he says, hey, and this sounds like a building code. It's like when you build a house in the land, make sure you build a parapet on your roof. You build like a guardrail around your roof. Because, and then the implied reasoning here, this is how we're supposed to think about God's law. You shall not murder. You could, you could interpret that very narrowly. Okay, I won't go out and like stab anyone to death. But it, it's much broader. What, the way God expects his people to think is, how can I safeguard the good of my neighbor? What can I do to preserve the life of my neighbor? To, to honor the fact that they're made in the image of God like me. And so we think of like safety, bring proactive safety measures. Like, you know, people used to hang out on roofs. It was like part of how they they lived. They would be on each other's roofs and stuff. And I I think houses may have been tiered. And so it was a a very legitimate safety concern that if there was no um, guardrail, no parapet on the roof, someone could accidentally fall even to their death. So the the point here is that God's law, sometimes we think of laws, you just read it and go, okay. It's meant to be uh, pried open. It's meant to be unpeeled like a fruit. And you get some, some sweet things inside regarding the character of God, ultimately, and how he made us. Uh, Jesus talks in Matthew 23, 23 to uh, his opponents who had a very narrow view of the law. He says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, all these spices. You're very exacting with tithing these things, but you have neglected 
the weightier matters of the law, the heavier things that are actually the most important. And what does he say those are? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So the particular commands of God are supposed to lead us to the broader issues, the weighty issues. What does this little law, this little command, really teach me about the weighty matters, who God is, and these matters of virtue like justice and faithfulness that the law is pointing us to? What, what, he, what he loves and what he made us for. This is the kind of meditation Psalm 1 is talking about. What does is, what is God's teaching tell me about who he is? And what does it tell me about what's good and what's valuable, or what's not good and what's not valuable? And this may f- sound foreign to us because meditation is kind of a lost art. And I'm not talking about Eastern meditation that's an emptying of the mind. Biblical meditation is actually kind of a filling of the mind with a certain body of truth, with, with God's truth. But it's this slow, steady kind of chewing. It's just ruminating throughout your day. You see it here in the psalm, day and night. It doesn't necessarily mean every single moment that's the only thing someone's thinking about. The idea is it's sort of always there. It's sort of always rumbling around in your mind, the things that God teaches and who he is. Uh, Meditation has fallen on hard times in the modern world because there's so many pressures that are constantly pushing us into the shallows, uh, the nature of our media. We have an an insane amount of access to information. And that can be helpful, but all that information can kind of keep us uh, consuming very broadly and shallowly and not really thinking carefully about much of anything. And then life is very busy today. We have very fast-paced and fragmented lives. As opposed to people from prior generations, they might have very few relationships over the course of many, many years that go pretty deep. We tend to have a thousand inch deep relationships. Everything in today's life in our world is very fragmented and it pushes against meditation. But this is, uh, this is a picture of this, this godly blessed person. Is there is meditation. There's a, there's a root system that goes deep into God's word. And most fundamentally, to be rooted in the instruction of God, in the law of God, to kind of cut to the chase over the course of the whole Bible, to meditate on the law of God is to be led to faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that, um, and I taught on this when we looked at the Psalms in our Old Testament survey a few weeks ago in Equipping Hour, that the first two Psalms are widely recognized to function as sort of the uh, the, the gateway into the whole Psalter. They, they, kind, of, they kind of fit together as sort of uh, the introduction to all the Psalms. And it's interesting how the first verse of Psalm 1 is one of these, it's called a macarism. It's a, it's a blessed pronouncement. Blessed is the one who. And then you have another such statement at the very end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son, the Son of God. That's who verse 12 is talking about. The Messiah. So we don't want to divorce this blessed is the one who meditates on the law from from this other side, which is blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Christ. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Son of God. That is the purpose of the law. We hear very clearly, Paul talks about this in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. And by end, he doesn't mean sort of the end of a sequence. He means the purpose, the goal to which the law pointed. It was an arrow toward Christ and the righteousness that comes by faith in him. So we don't want to read Psalm 1 in a Christless manner to just say, stop being influenced by the world and be influenced by God's commands. Go out and do better. No, rather Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.15 that the Old Testament scriptures make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. 
And Christ is the ultimate Psalm 1 man. That's a, kind of the first place to go with this, is to read this and go, well, I'm not, I'm not uh, like this very much. Or there, there's, I'm sorely aware of how unlike this I am. But Christ is and was this person. Christ is the one who delighted in the law of God and, and obeyed his laws fully in our place and gave his life for our redemption. So now, as, as Romans 5, 2 tells us, we who believe in Christ stand in grace. That's the standpoint from which we read Psalm 1. We stand in grace. We're not reading about how to be right with God. If we trust in Jesus, we're reading about what does God mean to do in our lives, given that we stand in grace. And so the question then comes, you who stand in grace, where are you forming your roots? Where are they growing into? Who has your ear? Who is forming your goals in life? Who is shaping your imagination? Who's defining for you your vision of the good, the things that are ultimately worth striving for? Is it news? Is it social media? Is it commerce, the world of commerce and advertisement? It's, it's very subtle and pervasive the way that advertisements shape our view of a good life. Is it man-made systems of life, philosophies that teach us kind of what the world is like and how to live in it that don't, that don't tie into Christ? So that's the roots, this question of what are we rooted in? That's, that's kind of the primary question, we're, uh, the first question we're, we're being taught to ask. Let's move up then, uh, up the tree a little bit into the, uh, the trunk and the branches that this root system supports. So here we look at the trunk and branches, two ways of life. This is verses three and four. The trunk and branches, two ways of life. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So we're no longer asking about what is the source of these two contrasting lives. We're now asking kind of what's the nature of these two lives? What kind of life are they? And the banner kind of over the whole thing is actually the beginning of verse 1, blessed. Now this word, what it means is happy in a very thick sense. Okay, not superficial, emotionally happy, but in the sense of fitting your designed purpose. Fitting the purpose for which you were designed as a human being. I want you to think about a bicycle, a bike, okay? You've got the, the sprocket that has these little teeth, right? What are those teeth? You just look at it and you say, what are these teeth for? They're meant to have a chain go around, right? I mean, that's, it, it's so clear, like, it, it was designed to have this chain go around it. And there's another sprocket in the back. And then as the crank turns, they both turn the chain together. It's clearly this design purpose. This was made to be used in a certain way, the sprocket with the chain. Or think of a train wheel with a railroad track. You look at a train wheel and you go, this isn't good for much unless it's on top of a railroad track. They were made to lock in and, and they can do great things. Or you look at some kind of aggressive off-road vehicle. And, and you go, man, I hope that thing gets to go on the dirt sometimes. <laughs> you know, like if you just get this really nice, uh, beefy uh, off-road vehicle and you just drive it around the streets, you go, what a waste, right? It's like something's wrong with that. Something's almost morally wrong with that because it's not fitting its design purpose. And human beings were made for a purpose, an end, a final cause that actually gives a fundamental explanation of what kind of being we are. And this word blessed, what it does is it puts a finger on the kind of life that fits the design we were made for. 
and therefore leads to a, a, a thick, again, it's not just emotions in the moment, a thick sense of flourishing and happiness. You're like a hand in a glove, or you, I should say you're like a glove with a hand in it, right? Like you were made for this. The happiest glove of all is the, the glove with a hand in it. Uh, it's about saying you've got it good. This is the good life. Congratulations. This is the way that you were made to live. And the opposite of it is another biblical concept, a biblical term called woe. What is a woe in the Bible? And the prophets say, is saying, you got it bad. That is the way of, that is the way of misery. It's putting a finger on, woe is, is you who, and then defining some kind of person saying, that is a way of misery. I pity the person who's in that boat. That's what a woe is. So the blessed one, this is this happy one, meditates on the law. Those are the roots. The roots go into the teaching of God. And then verse 3 tells us what the blessedness consists of. And to kind of summarize it all, we, we could say it's stability and fruitfulness. This picture of the tree is so evocative, just to camp on in your mind, this picture of this tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Like the fruit comes out on schedule. Its leaf does not wither. So there always seems to be enough moisture for this tree and all that he does, he prospers. Now, there's no explicit woe in this psalm. It's certainly implied. And the woe really is verse 4, the wicked. What's the wicked like? What, what kind of life is it? Verse 4 tells us. They're not so, the wicked are not like that tree. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. In other words, impermanence, vulnerability. Trees are steady and solid. Chaff is insubstantial. It's almost as light as air. It's blown away by the slightest breeze. You know what chaff comes from when you harvest wheat. You, you, you get all the wheat together and the, the, the grain kernels are mixed in with this really, really light material called chaff. It's all together. And then what you have to do is you have to, um, you have to thresh it. You have to like agitate it. And what happens is in that agitation, if there's any breeze at all, you agitate, you kind of throw it up in the air. And they would do this with like I don't know, pitchforks, whatever they had in ancient Israel, they would like manually thresh it and they would be kicking it up and then any breeze would just blow the chaff away, leaving the, the, the substantial weighty kernels of grain left. So you're, it's so opposite. Just think of these pictures, this tree, this big solid tree with its roots in the ground and then this chaff. It's like nothing. The cool thing about a tree rooted by a stream is that's where the shallow groundwater is. And if you're in a dry climate like Israel or California, the streams only flow seasonally in the rainy season. But the groundwater is always shallowest near stream beds. So this is a place where if you're a tree, you want to put your roots down if you want to get big. And you want to put, put, form a massive trunk. And, and as I said before, we here in California, you go to stream beds. You go to places where there's creeks and rivers, and that's where the trees are big. That's where they're dark green, and they're rich, and they're living it's like, those trees have it good. Blessed are those trees. It's this rich, deep green thread. Even if you're in some place with grassland, it's like this sea of yellow and brown. And they say, oh, there's a creek over there. Because it's this rich, deep green color weaving through. Now, we can be used to thinking about biblical ethics, what the Bible teaches about how to live in terms of a final outcome. And that's very good. In this life, often there is sacrifice, there's self-denial that we're called to as Christians. And then we say, yes, there's sacrifice or self-denial, but it will pay off in eternity. 
Now, I myself preached that sermon last week, so I don't want to say that's not biblical. It is very biblical. We saw that in Mark chapter 12. Jesus taught that in in view of eternity, these things make sense, the resurrection. But that's not the only biblical way to look at ethics, not the only biblical way to look at life. There's another side, and Psalm 1 gives, and other wisdom literature tend to give this picture, not of like, what's the final outcome in the judgment after we've denied ourselves in this life, but it's more the sense of, what, what kind of life are we going to have right now? What is the way of having a good life right now? And the, the biblical kind of paradox that we, we have to, it's challenging, we have to chew on this, is, is that the blessed and godly life does feature sacrifice and self-denial, but all along the way, it's full, manifestly full of good experience, of stability and satisfaction and joy. And if you've been walking with Christ for, for years, for, for a while, you can resonate with that. You can say, I'm kind of always dying to myself and giving something up. But then there's this deep sense of like, this is really good. Even if day to day, there's sorrows and, and costs and expense. Verses 3 and 4 are not about the future. They're not promises about eschatology, the future, what's going to happen as the outcome of your life. Verses 3 to 4 are about now. So I would ask you, which of these sounds more like you? That steady, solid tree or that chaff that just blows away with nothing. Rains come and go. Wind blows and dies down. And they'll come blow another direction and die down and so on. And the, the big contrast between these pictures highlights and illustrates to us um, how affected these two kinds of people are by varying conditions. So the tree, it's like, the tree's fine, right? That's kind of the idea. The tree's going to be fine. It's going to be dry months. It's going to be wet months. The tree's going to be okay. It's going to do its thing. It's going to keep growing. It's going to keep bearing fruit and being green. It has a steady source of life. The dry months don't hurt it. The rainstorms are nice. Either way, it's going to be okay. The chaff is the complete opposite. Even the tiniest shifts in atmospheric conditions send it flying and swirling into chaos. So when the pressures and trials of life come, how do they tend to affect you? Of course it's hard. Of course there are times of sorrow and struggle. Again, look to Jesus as the example of this. The ultimate picture of a man steady in the word of God according to Psalm 1. But what was his life like? He was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in, Psalm, in Isaiah 53. Uh, he often bared his soul to God in lament, casting himself upon his heavenly father. He was, he was dependent. We see, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross, uh, Jesus is a steady, deeply rooted, fruitful man. But look at him at the Garden of Gethsemane going. Uh, he's, 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 he's sweating uh, drops of blood. He's, he's crying tears. He's in agony. But it's through struggle he is that person relying on his heavenly father and being steady and fruitful. And how firm he stood throughout his life uh, and how plentiful was the fruit. And if you read in the Gospels, just kind of maybe you're thinking of Psalm 1 and reading through the Gospels and saying, how does Jesus look like this? He was clearly tapped into something that the world could not affect, something the world could not touch. Uh, he, he faced opponents uh, that were animated by satanic opposition against him. And even his own friends, his disciples, often failed him, and they were often at cross-purposes with him. And yet he stood firm in God's ways. And brothers and sisters, we who share the spirit of Christ, and we who uh, have this, these same words available to us, this can be us too in Christ. This can be us too as we imitate Christ by the strength that he supplies. 
Are you like chaff? Are you brittle and easily thrown into despair by the shifting conditions of life? If this sounds like you, I would urge you to consider what your roots are tapped into. It may be that you do feel this sense of, I'm just easily blown this way and that. Asking the question, who's counseling me? Who's shaping my view of the world? Is it the wicked? Is it the scoffers? Or is the teaching of the Lord counseling my soul? Now, it may be that you're here and you've never put your trust in Christ. And you're not somebody who stands in grace, as we heard earlier from Romans 5.2. If that's you this morning, first of all, we're so glad you're here hearing the word of God. But we also want to tell you that you're squarely on the chaff side of this ledger. Your condition is vulnerable to the the changing circumstances of life. And at times you may feel like you're doing pretty well with life. But what happens when things start falling apart? And things start crashing down? What happens when relationships suffer? Or your job is threatened? Or your health takes a bad turn? Or you're staring death itself right in the face. You will discover in those times that you're not rooted into anything solid at all. And if that's you today, I urge you to let the teaching of the Lord here in Psalm 1 make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Again, that's the purpose of the scriptures, of the Old Testament. To follow the counsel of the companion Psalm, Psalm 2 by taking refuge in the Son of God. And finding in Jesus Christ all of the forgiveness for your sin and all of the gift of righteousness, a standing before God in his justifying grace, cleansed and forgiven, and all of the eternal life that he shares with those who believe in him. That can be yours today. So we've seen the roots. We've looked at the roots. What are they tapped into? Where are we drawing life? And then, then we've looked at the trunk and branches. What kind of life is it? Finally, in verses 5 and 6, we'll see the final outcome of these contrasting manners of life. So this is the fruit, number three, the fruit, two outcomes of life. The fruit, two outcomes of life. This is verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we just saw in verses 3 and 4 describing two ways of life right now. But now in verses 5 and 6, the psalm does kind of pan across into the eschaton, the end, to tell us the final outcome of these two ways. The truth is that the outcome is organically related to the process. The destination is organically related to the road that leads there. So a life that's full of of flourishing, uh, this steady tree kind of life by streams of water, it produces, verse 3 told us, it produces a certain kind of fruit. We didn't really talk about what is that fruit, what does it mean. In the context of broader biblical teaching, it seems to indicate virtues, which are certain habits of character that imitate God's own character, of course, in limited creaturely ways. So things like love and righteousness and truth, humility, courage, joy, Kindness, patience, self-control. There are many we could, we could draw from Scripture. Now, when we think about the final outcome, these character traits are not the basis of the future verdict to come, uh, of the judgment to come. God will not call us righteous because he, he, he looked at fruit. He looked at what our lives produce and said, oh, you're good enough, you can come on in and be counted righteous. It's only because of our righteous standing in Christ. It's only because by faith we've been counted righteous in him. Yet, these godly habits of character are indeed signposts that indicate which road we're heading toward, which outcome we are facing, life or death. 
In Romans chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, Paul writes to Christians about the evil deeds that they, or we could say we, used to do before we converted to faith in Christ. And, and I'm going to read those verses. Listen for the, how the fruit, the manner of life in this life, indicates the end result, how it's related to the end result. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time in this life, is what he means, from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He draws that line. The fruit, what fruit were you getting? The end leads to death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So what he's saying is the fruit that our lives bear is in some way indicating the kind of end that that life leads to, either death or life. And this seems to be what's, what Psalm 1 is pointing us to because we had, again, two different ways of being and then finally it's like, let's see where they end up, verses 5 and 6. The contrasting outcomes of the righteous and the wicked. Now it's all kind of framed by what the righteous will and will not experience. Once again, we can draw the experience of the, of, of the righteous by contrast to the wicked. The wicked, verse 5, will not stand in God's final judgment, but the righteous will. The righteous will be called righteous in God's final judgment. The wicked won't be gathered with the congregation of God's people in that day, but the righteous will. So again, that idea of not just one tree, but a lot of them, it comes in here. There is a corporate sense uh, of our heavenly reward. There's this assembly of all of God's people we read about like in Hebrews chapter 12. The assembly of the righteous that even our gathering as a local body is a foretaste of. Don't you want to be included in the company of the redeemed of all God's people? Won't that be a beautiful outcome? The Lord knows the way of the righteous, verse 6. Now, that doesn't mean that he's ignorant of the way of the wicked. There's no limitations to God's knowledge. He knows everything. He's omniscient. To say that the Lord knows the way of the righteous has to do with his eye of special care and special knowledge for his people. Like a watchful shepherd. We read in Psalm 32, 8, he says, to one of his, his own, he says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That doesn't mean that he does, there's anything he doesn't know, but what it means is there's a special eye of care and counsel and protection. And this, this saying, the Lord knows this person is contrasted in verse 6 with perishing. The opposite of being known by the Lord this way is perishing. The wicked ex- experience eternal death in the judgment. And that doesn't mean annihilation, like the lights just go out forever. It's an existence of never dead, but always dying. That's what future judgment is for the wicked. The Lord has removed his eye of care, and it's only his hand of judgment lying heavily upon you for eternity. But again, this outcome is related to the process. If you lived in a godless manner, and if you filled your heart and your imagination with godless goals and ideas of what's good, and, and if you pursued your own godless desires throughout your life, doesn't it make sense that your eternity will be an utter removal from God, the only fountain of life and joy and blessing? You see how the, the end result is connected to the process. So we've looked at the roots. Where do we draw life from? We've looked at the trunk and the branches. What kind of life do we live? And then we've looked at the fruit Eternally, what sort of destination are we headed toward, even as indicated by the fruit we're producing now? And again, as I said earlier, the end of the matter when all has been heard is, the best life is a godly life. 
don't these word pictures in this psalm put in your, in your mouth a kind of thirst? You're kind of going like, I want to live that way. I want to know the Lord that way. I want to be deeply rooted in his words. And maybe you've experienced some of the variety of these, these existences. Maybe you've been that non-believer, or you are today, maybe that non-believer who's like chaff, and you know, I'm just blown this way and that. I'm not rooted in anything solid. I'm not producing anything ultimately good. It may be that you're, even as a Christian, you've struggled through dry seasons because you have not been meditating on the Lord and his words. Uh, though you're not the wicked in that, in that formal sense, you've experienced something of that kind of parched and uh, impermanent way of life. You feel vulnerable to being blown around by circumstances. And if that's your experience, and, and if that's been your experience, perhaps Psalm 1 is telling you why that's happening or why that has happened in your life. Maybe you've experienced as you've walked with Christ in your life, maybe now or at other times, uh, um, periods of deep refreshment and enjoyment of God when you've felt like you're walking closely with him and you're drinking deeply of his words and you're communing with him in prayer. And maybe in that state, hard circumstances came and went. But nevertheless, you felt this ballast. You felt this weighty security deep in your soul that enabled you to keep on loving and rejoicing and hoping and trusting even through great difficulty and pain, or just as we sang earlier, uh, carry on in weakness and rejoicing. The Lord has taught us with his wisdom this morning. He's laid before us these two ways of life, and may he use this teaching to draw all of our hearts ever nearer to him, the fountain of life in whom we receive life. Let's pray. Our God, we bless you. We ascribe blessing to you, knowing you are the one whose existence is eternal. You don't depend on your creatures. You made us and we exist because of your will. And we confess that you are a happy God. You're full of blessing in yourself. You don't, uh, you're not needy. You're not dependent on anything. And that you as the fountain who is so filled with blessing in himself, you love to give. You love to pour out of your fullness to us. That's what you've done in creating us. And that's what you've done in saving us in Christ. And we pray that we would be a people who delight in receiving from the supply of your grace for all of our life. That we would be a people who discern the scoffing, the, the way of the wicked and the, the, the scoffing and the evil. That we would reject that. That we'd be people who uh, plant our souls in you and your teaching. And that we'd be people who are steady and fruitful. Even when life is in crisis. Even when it's painful. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who fully obeyed and fully carried out this psalm. We love how fruitful he was. Part of uh, the fruit of his obedience is that he redeemed us. We are, we are accounted righteous in him because he carried this out. He was steady. He was faithful. He carried out his mission dependent on you. And we praise him and pray that all in my hearing today would be trusting in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>